I told Ron that uh, having a beard is a hazard when you dedicate children. <laughs> so funny this morning, uh, Ron was uh, dedicating uh, Spencer Shaw, and every time Ron began to say something, Spencer would yawn right in his face. And I told him that was good training for being a preacher. Would you turn with me, please, to the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel? The fourth chapter of Daniel. Daniel may be a little bit difficult for you to find if you can find Isaiah, which is almost in the middle of the Bible. Just keep turning to the right, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel, Daniel 4. I think we're all intrigued by the conversion stories that people tell us, particularly those of uh, very prominent people, such as Chuck Colson. I was fascinated by the account of his uh, journey to God, his book, uh, Born Again. When someone like Colson, who is so unlikely a candidate for the kingdom, becomes a Christian, it's always an encouragement to us. I'll never forget uh, G. Gordon Liddy's comment about about Colson. He said, if Colson would run over his grandmother for Jesus, uh, his grandmother for Nixon, think of what he'll do for Jesus. And certainly has been true. Daniel 4 is that sort of account. It's a conversion story. It's a story of the conversion of the most prominent, powerful king in history, Gentile king. Now, that's not my assessment, and that's not the assessment of history. That's God's evaluation of, of Nebuchadnezzar. He's described in the book of Daniel as the head of gold. And all other kings and kingdoms who succeeded him were inferior to him. He was the greatest Gentile king the world has ever seen. Something happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He was a man initially who worshipped the gods and goddesses of Babylon. He became a worshipper of the God of Israel. The story of how that happened occurs in in, uh, chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar begins with an open letter, uh, a sort of witness to his faith. That's why I call this chapter the Confessions of Nebuchadnezzar, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to the peoples, nations, and men of all language, of of every language who live in all the world. May your prosperity increase. It is my pleasure, or it pleases me, to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders, his kingdom that is, the kingdom of the Most High God, the God of all gods, the Lord of lords. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion or his rule endures from generation to generation. Now, you wouldn't expect that from from Nebuchadnezzar. Nothing in history indicates that Nebuchadnezzar was was a worshiper of the true God. As a matter of fact, uh, excavations in Babylon would indicate something entirely different. Uh, Babylon is a city that's been excavated more extensively than any other city in the ancient Near East. And uh, they discovered a huge procession way about 85 feet across that leads from the East Star Gate, the main gate of Babylon, down to the center of the city, somewhat like our Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. And the, the, the street is paved with large limestone blocks, each one inscribed. And the inscription goes something like this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, quarried these mountain stones for the sake of Marduk, my lord. May Marduk... Give me eternal life. All the evidence, the the chronicles of of Nebuchadnezzar, which you can read. They're not extensive. You sit down and read them in about 10 or 15 minutes. All of the chronicles indicate that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped the gods 
Belmarduk, Nebo, the Babylonian gods and, and goddesses of his time. And yet, Daniel 4 tells us that one of these days we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Something happened to turn him around and change his life and his focus. He began to center upon the God of Israel. And how that came about is told in chapter 4. Now, it begins with a dream. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I, the, the word that's translated prosperous here in Aramaic is actually the word to grow green, which is symbolic of the whole story. He was flourishing. He was growing green. And he had a dream that made him afraid. His fear came not because he did not, uh, didn't come from a, a misunderstanding of the dream or because he couldn't interpret it. It came from the fact that he knew very well what the dream meant. It was a recurring dream. Apparently it happened over and over again. It was more nightmare than dream. Uh, I have a dream like that that keeps reoccurring. It, it, it just uh, wakes me up in a cold sweat every time it occurs. I dream that I'm in an old, old house with rotten floors, and there's a river underneath, a kind of a green, greasy river. And my children keep falling through the cracks in the floor. And I have to go in and, and try to rescue them. They're usually hanging onto some piling down in this, in this river. And I always wake up uh, frightened out of, out of my wits. And I'm sure some Jungian dream analyst would have a field day with that one. But uh, since I fixed our leaky toilet, we haven't, I haven't had that dream. <laughs> but Nebuchadnezzar had, had this dream over and over and over again. And it scared the wits out of him because he knew precisely what it meant. Now, I'm not going to read the account. It's extensive. Uh, he, he called in his uh, counselors in the, his star chamber, and, and they tried to interpret the dream. I think they, they, too, knew what it meant, but they were afraid to give him the interpretation. And finally, Daniel showed up. He seems to be one of these fellows who always is late. And he came into the room, and Nebuchadnezzar told him his dream in verse 9. Verse 10 says, uh, These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. And the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, an angel, a holy one, a watcher, he's called in the text, but in, in Babylonian thinking, these are angels. Coming down from heaven, he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground and the grass of the field. This is apparently a way uh, stumps were preserved. They put a band, an iron band or a bronze band around the stump to keep it from splitting or rotting. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times, seven years probably pass over him. So immediately we're led to understand that the, that the tree represents a man. And I think Nebuchadnezzar understood that he was the man, though he, he, didn't want to, he didn't want to face the fact that the dream was about him. Now, the watcher uh, supplies the lesson to be learned 
from the dream. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. That's the lesson to be learned. Three times that theme is repeated in this chapter. Here in verse 17, again in verse 25, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And then in 32, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. So it's clear that the lesson to be learned is that God is sovereign. He rules. Heaven rules. And he gives away the kingdoms of men to those that he sovereignly determines or establishes as, uh, as leaders. Now what, what Nebuchadnezzar saw was a tree. It's like the tree that's depicted on your bulletin. Large, impressive tree, verdant leaves spreading out, animals, birds finding protection under the tree. Someone comes along and cuts it down. It's cut down in its prime. It falls and loses its, uh, its appearance, its, its presence. And the watcher says, I'm talking about a man who's going to lose his authority, his dignity, his majesty. He's going to be cut down in his prime so that the world will know that God rules sovereignly in heaven and he establishes those in positions of leadership that he, that he pleases and he raises up the lowliest of men. Now, I think anybody can understand the meaning and the significance of that, of that story, that dream. And I think that's why Nebuchadnezzar was unnerved. We're told in verse 19 that Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts alarmed him, not because he didn't understand the, the dream. He knew what the dream meant. But I think it pained him to tell him, tell the king what it meant. It's interesting to see Daniel's attitude toward Nebuchadnezzar. This is the man who sacked and burned his hometown, who probably slaughtered members of his family, who had taken him away from his home and driven him into exile in, 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 uh, in Babylon. And yet he loved this man. It's interesting. It's a classic Old Testament illustration of the truth that we're to love our enemies and pray for those that despitefully use us. Daniel cared about this man. And uh, it disturbed him when he realized what, what the dream meant. Belshazzar, that was Daniel's Babylonian name, answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting place in its branches for the birds of the air. He must have pa paused at this point. And then he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. You're the tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like a wild animal until seven years pass by for him. This is the meaning, O king, and this is the decree. The Most High has issued this decree against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live among wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until... 
you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Until you recognize that your greatness comes from God, he says you'll live like an animal. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. That's the origin of the term that shows up in the Gospels. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven means the same thing as the kingdom of God. God rules. God is sovereign. And that's the lesson to be learned. And when you acknowledge that heaven rules, your kingdom will be restored. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my counsel. Break off your sins, he says. Break your bad habits, your cruelty, your pride, your malice, your greed, your envy of other people and their possessions. And as a sign of having turned your back on your sins, do what is right. Renounce your wickedness, and as a sign, be kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your security or your prosperity will continue. The dream is fulfilled in in the verses that follow. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later. That's an indication of God's grace. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why our Lord hasn't come back yet. One of these days, He's coming back to set things straight. He hasn't come back yet because He's waiting for people to, to come to Him. That's why God permitted His people to suffer in Egypt for 400 years, because He's waiting for the Canaanites to repent. But though the mills of God grind slowly, they grind exceedingly fine. And judgment day came for Nebuchadnezzar. God waited for 12 months, a full year, while Nebuchadnezzar went on in his pride and his arrogance, never giving God the time of day, taking credit for everything that he did. God waited for this man, lovingly waited for him. But 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Surely this is the great Babylon which I myself have built as the royal residence by my power and for my glory. In other words, I did all of this by myself. I didn't need God. And I did it for myself. Now, as I said, Babylon has been extensively excavated, and this city was the greatest city of its time. It was great by modern standards. There really has not been anything done that's comparable, even in recent years. It's a magnificent place. It was impregnable, easy to defend. People were secure in the city of Babylon's enormous wall, 52 miles in length around the city of Babylon. 85 feet tall. That's 10 stories, the height of our skyscraper downtown. The width of a six-lane modern highway. They could turn their chariots around on the wall. Extensive water system. They diverted the the Euphrates River to run right through the city, and they always had water in time of, of siege. Babylon was the place that contained the famous hanging gardens, which the Greeks call one of the seven wonders of the world. He had a, he had a queen by the name of Amethyst from Media, and she became homesick for her country in the hills of Media, so he built her a mountain, an artificial mountain with trees and gardens and a watering system. It just must have been incredibly beautiful. Archaeologists digging in Babylon find on every brick 
in the city of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's name. Nebuchadnezzar says that was his Babylonian name. Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar's city. The world had never seen anything before. They've hardly seen anything like the city of Babylon since. And uh, he's walking around on the top of his palace, enjoying what he had done. Look at this great Babylon, he said, which I have built by my power and for myself. And the words had hardly come out of his mouth before the man went stark, raving mad. The text tells us, verse 33, that immediately he began to go crazy. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, and he ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. But at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. He was like the man from whom Jesus cast the legion, this man whom no one could contain. It was absolutely insane. It was a threat to the populace, the, the Decapolis there. And when Jesus came into his life, his sanity was restored. They found him seated and in his right mind. So what happened to Nebuchadnezzar at the end of that seven-year period. He looked up. He drew near to God. And his sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who, who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven, that is, the spiritual powers and the peoples of the earth. No one can slap his hand. Literally, it's taken from the practice of striking the hand of a child. When they reach out for something, they go get a cookie on the table, and Babylonian mother would whack their hand. No one strikes his hand. No one stops him from doing what he intends to do. Nor can they say to him, what have you done? Can't question what he does. Can't gainsay God. Can't say he did it all wrong. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles, those who were in charge while he was insane, sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, am praising, it's a participle, I'm praising, and exalting and glorifying the King of Heaven, the Lord of Israel, because everything He does is truth. He deals according to the truth, and His ways are right. And those who walk around in pride, He says, He is able to humble. According to Babylonian uh, records, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years and there's a hint in history that at the end of his reign something went wrong. Several of the historians of that period describe a serious illness that befell him at the end, very end of his reign from which he recovered. He lived one more year and then he died. But he came to his senses. He came to the conclusion that heaven rules. And one of these days when we get to heaven, we're, we're, we're going to meet Nebuchadnezzar. He, he's going to be there. So I read this account, I'm convinced that with the limited amount of knowledge that he had, he had given his heart to God. And he's going to say to us in the words of Jesus, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I lost my world, he'll say, but I gained my soul. Interesting story.
the conversion of the most unlikely sort of person, the greatest king, the greatest Gentile king that ever lived, in his waning years, he came to God. Now, what can we learn? Uh, essentially, we, we can learn what Nebuchadnezzar learned. There are a number of observations you can make through the text, lessons that he picked up as a result of his experience. The first is that God is sovereign. He rules. There are no accidents in history. There are no maverick molecules. Nothing happens by chance. Everything that happens, happens because God determines that it will happen. He permits it to happen or he causes it to happen. He's not the cause of death and disease and disorder. He never makes evil things happen. He can't attribute anything evil to God, but he permits them to happen. He's sovereign. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing is happening to you today by chance. Heaven rules. There's an interesting story in, in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel about the Philistines and the ark. They stole the ark from Shiloh. They sacked and burned the sanctuary of Israel, took the ark down to uh, Ashkelon, or Ashdod first, one of the uh, Philistine cities. And uh, they put it in the temple of their god Dagon, and the next morning they went in to worship Dagon, and they discovered he'd fallen off his pedestal and broken his hands, and so they moved the ark out of the the sanctuary in the middle of town, and people began to fall ill, and, and they said, we've got to get this thing out of town, so they sent it down to Gath, and the people of Gath began to, began to fall ill, so they sent it down to Ashkelon, and same thing happened to them down there, and they said, we've got to get this thing out of here, and they talked to the priests and the diviners, and they said, well, well, here's what you do. You find two cows that have calves, and you hook them up to a cart, and uh, pin up the calves, and you put the, put the ark on the cart, and you send it off to Beit Shemesh, which is where that was the closest Israelite city. There's a road from Ashkelon to uh, Beit Shemesh. And uh, the diviner said, if the cows, against their nature, will leave their calves and take that cart up to Beit Shemesh, then we'll know that the God of Israel rules. If they don't, we will know that it happened, remember the words, by chance. And so they loaded the ark up on the cart, and these uh, nursing cows, contrary to their nature, made a beeline from Ashkelon to Beit Shemesh, because nothing happens by chance. Now that's not a threat to me. That you know, I, I cannot, I, I cannot uh, reconcile the concept of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The Bible doesn't try to do that. I believe that we are responsible for our actions. But it's a tremendous comfort to me to know that God rules. Nothing happens by chance. He's sovereign. I uh, came across a poem the other day in which this truth is well stated. God is working out his purpose in spite of all that happens here. Lawless nations in commotion, restless like a storm-tossed ocean... He controls their rage and fury so his children need not fear. We don't need to, to panic when the world seems to be falling apart. God's not pacing the floor, biting his nails, wringing his hands, wondering what's going to happen and how we're going to work these problems out according to the book of Revelation. He's seated on a throne around which there's a sea of glass. There are no ripples. There are no waves. There's no panic in heaven. Everything's under his control. That is a tremendous comfort to me. That doesn't threaten me. 
that comforts me. The second thing I would say is that uh, we've, we, we must accept that sovereignty in our lives. It's not enough simply to recognize that uh, he rules in the world and he sets up leaders and he brings down leaders. It's one thing to project the truth of his sovereignty onto others. We have to recognize it ourselves. We need to understand that that men and women were made to be mastered and were only great when we're governed by God. I fully believe that men and women are great. The human Members of the human race are magnificent beings. We should never look at ourselves and think of ourselves as junk or trash. We are not. A number of years ago, uh, Bill Edlin wrote an article on humanism, and I countered with another article the next week. Some of you may remember, and I said, I'm a humanist too, and that, that concerned a lot of people. They thought I'd lost my mind. The point I was trying to make is that humanists believe in the greatness of man, and I believe too in the greatness of man. I believe that man is something special, and I'm thinking man in, in generic terms, not, not man as a male. Men and women are made in the image of God. They are something special. The difference is the secular humanists say that man is great because he emerged from below. He's, he has ascended from a bit of slime. He's ascended from the naked apes. That's what makes him special. It's his architectural achievements. It's what he can do in terms of art and music. It's his human brilliance and ability that makes him great. But you see, if we take the Bible seriously, we understand that man is great because God made him great. That's what God has done. He's great because he's come down from above. Psalm 8 puts it this way. The psalmist asks the question, What is man that you care about him? The question is asked of God. What is man that you care about him? Or the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than God, is the way the text reads. In other words... Human beings are the most God-like beings on the face of the earth. They are next to God in significance. You have crowned him with authority and honor, he says. That's our greatness. That we're made by God and made for him. And we only come to know our greatness when we put ourselves under his, his dominion. That's the only way to become what God intended us to be. True humility, therefore, then, is thankfulness. It is not looking in a mirror and, you know, I can't imagine a beautiful woman looking in a mirror and trying to convince herself that she's ugly. That's not humility. Or a highly intelligent man or woman trying to convince themselves that, that they're dumb. That's not humility. Humility is recognizing that what we are, we are because of God. If God has given you responsive, intelligent, loving children. It's thanking God for that rather than taking the credit for it as, 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 as their parents. If God is using you to, to create something beautiful in terms of art or architecture, then humility is thanking God for that ability. It's not saying, I can't do anything. I don't have any, any abilities. We are great. And Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Nebuchadnezzar recognized that. He said that God made him greater than he was before, but it was God who made him great. That's the lesson we have to learn. We were made for God, and our greatness comes from Him. You have to be thankful. According to 
to Romans 1, the problem with the human race is that we're not thankful. We don't think to thank God for what we are. We take the credit for it ourselves. The third thing I learned from this passage is that sometimes in order to lead us into greatness, God may have to hurt and he may have to humble us, as he did Nebuchadnezzar. He permitted Nebuchadnezzar to waste, quote, waste seven years of his life in order to to bring him to himself. He may permit us to go insane. Taking this passage seriously leads me to conclude that some forms of mental illness are the direct result of sin. I'm not saying all forms are, because they clearly are not. Sin in general has marred the human race. Physical affliction in general, sickness, the the sort of things that, that befall all of us, they, they come because of sin in the world. The same is true of mental illness. We can become sick in our minds because of sin in general in the world, and it can't be traced to any specific sin. But some insanity is caused by sin. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. His greatness, his feelings of personal greatness corrupted him. Lord Acton said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And that's what happened to to Nebuchadnezzar. The man went stark, raving mad. His pride drove him insane. And while God did not bring that insanity on him, he, he permitted it. He sovereignly permitted it. If he doesn't lead us into true insanity, there is a, a sort of craziness that uh, we can fall into. We can wreck our health. We can destroy our marriages. We can bankrupt our our businesses, we can begin to make foolish, foolish decisions that destroy us, and God will let it happen in order to bring it to the end of ourselves so that, like Nebuchadnezzar, we begin to look up and long for God. Or He may hurt us in other ways. I've mentioned before my friends who are missionaries now with uh, overseas crusades in the Far East who were typical yuppies. They lived in Santa Clara County. They had a beautiful home and in Santa Clara, they had a condominium in Bear Valley. They had a Mercedes and a BMW. They were riding high. They were on their way to success. Both of them had, had high-paying jobs. They unexpectedly became pregnant. The child had Down syndrome. It's in mongoloid, seriously retarded. And uh, when I met them, they introduced me to the little boy, told me his name is Andrew, because like Andrew in, in the New Testament, Andrew brought him to the Lord. This man said he literally got down on his knees beside his baby's bed when he was diagnosed as, uh, as having Down syndrome. And, and he cried out to God for help. It was the only time in his life that he ever thought of God. God miraculously intervened in his life. Now, I don't think God sends Down syndrome, but he permits these things to happen in order to break us and destroy our pride and bring us to ourselves because he knows that it's better to lose the whole world and gain your soul than gain the whole world and lose the only eternal commodity that you have, and that's your soul. When Carolyn and I were in Montana last uh, uh, summer at a conference, we met a young pastor from the uh, Idaho panhandle who told me about a friend of his, a logger, who was a tough, independent man, had no use for God in his life, but through a logging accident became a paraplegic and a Christian. Gave his life to Christ. 
And he said to this uh, young pastor, Jesus said, it's better to go into heaven with one good eye than to have two good eyes and go to hell. And he said, I'd have to say, it's better to go into heaven with no legs than to walk into hell on two. And that's what this story teaches us. God may have to hurt us because there are, there are more important things at stake than our personal health, affluence, ease, pleasure. We don't have to wait as long as Nebuchadnezzar waited. We don't have to wait for 30 years. Anytime we look up, God is ready to respond. If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. The fourth thing I would have to say about this passage is that the way to greatness is through humility. Jesus said if you go into a, a, a eating pl- in, into a banquet hall and uh, you sit at the head table, the, the master of the feast may ask you to go sit at the, at the back of the room. If you sit at the back of the room, the head of the feast will ask you to come up front. It's when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he exalts you. It's when you submit to his sovereignty that he makes you great. And repentance and humility begins with repentance. As in Nebuchadnezzar's case, it's a matter of saying, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Jesus said, that's the man that's justified. Two men went into a temple. One man looked at the fellow across the way, who was a publican, who was a tax collector, who would be considered in in modern-day terms as a purveyor of pornography. And that he looked at that man and he said, I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not like that man. And that man said, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the man that went out of the room justified, not the other man. And we just have to come to that place where we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then God begins to make us great. He forgives us and restores us to a place of honor. People have asked me, oh, for the last two weeks, what I think of the Jim and Tammy Baker affair. And I do have some thoughts about that whole uh, matter. I'm in the process of writing a column on it to come out in a couple of weeks. But let me tell you what I'm thinking right now. In the first place, I don't think that's going to destroy the kingdom of God. No, uh, no scandal. Nothing that we can do is going to thwart God or frustrate him. Jesus said, the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. That means the highest strategies of, ch- of hell cannot overthrow his church. So the kingdom of God is going to go marching on. I'm not worried about the effect that's going to have. God is well able to protect his reputation and the reputation of his people. So don't worry about that. But I have a couple of other thoughts, things that do, I do take very seriously. The first thing that comes to me is that there, but for the grace of God, go you and I. If you don't think you, you can fall into the same sin, If we don't think we can fall into the same sin, we are fools. In fact, Scripture says that it's the one who thinks he's standing who's likely to fall. So we can't be smug and gleeful. We just have to recognize that we could all be right there but for the grace of God. That's why I pray every day, as I hope you do, Lord, don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Don't let me get into those situations where I could damage and destroy my life. You protect me. Boy, that's one lesson to be learned. The other lesson to be learned, and here I'm sure some of you will disagree with me, but I am deeply pained that Jim Baker is yet to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He has defended and protected himself. He has blamed everyone around him, including Tammy, and he has yet to say, I blew it, and I'm sorry. 
And that's the place to which we have to come. We have to be willing to stand before God and man and say, I have sinned. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't blame anybody but myself. Have mercy on me. That's the place to which Nicodemus came. And when he humbled himself, remember the last line? God's able to humble those that are proud. When he humbled himself, God restored him to his place of dignity and honor and majesty. He gave him back his rule. It was only for a short time. But he made a man out of him. Took God in the beginning to make a man. Still takes God to make a man or a woman. We only come into our own when we acknowledge his lordship. C.S. Lewis has an interesting essay in Mere Christianity in which he's discussing the problem that a lot of people have before they become Christians. This feeling that if we give ourselves up to Christ, we're going to lose ourselves. We'll all be the same. We'll be drab and colorless and indistinguishable. And he's going to cramp our style and take all the joy out of life. He puts it this way. At the beginning, I said there were personalities in God. I will go further now. There are no real personalities anywhere else. Unless you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. Sameness is to be found most among natural men, that is, those without Christ. Not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors of history. How gloriously different are the saints. I thought last Christmas, as I looked at our Christmas tree, that uh, the Christmas tree lights in our tree well represent what happens when a person comes to Christ. You turn the lights out, they all look the same. They're drab, they're colorless, they look cold. You turn the lights on and they come on in all their glory. They're all different, all different colors. All expressions of the same life, the common house current that, in, that gives life to each one. Same is true of us. All personalities are in God when we submit to Him then our real personality begins to come out. I've seen that happen over and over again to men and women. They've just become different, glorious, radiant people. Different from anyone else. They haven't lost anything. They've gained everything because they've come to Christ. He goes on to say, The principle runs through life from top to bottom. Give yourself up and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death. The death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day. And the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Jesus, and you'll find Him, and with Him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Lord, we all have those times in our lives when when You have turned against us because You are for us. You've become our enemy because You want to save us. You've taken away our world, the things that we've worked for, the things that we've longed for because they're the wrong things to work for and long for. And you've used these times of distress to center us on you, and we we can only thank you for that. And say with Nebuchadnezzar and with Jesus, 
We'd rather lose the world and gain our soul than gain the world and lose our souls. We thank you for loving us enough to intervene in our lives and bring these shattering experiences along that that take away our self-confidence and our pride and our arrogance, our feelings that we are the masters of our fate, the captains of our own soul, and drive us back to you. Make us dependent upon you. We thank you for loving us enough to do that for us. We thank you for the story this morning. We know that it's true. It happened in history. It can happen today. You can restore us through repentance to our majesty and honor and glory and make us great. We ask that they might be true. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.